Welcome to Footnotes to a Novel. I'm Travis Holland. Today, an audio piece and an interview. And before we get started, a warning. Today's episode contains material that may not be suitable for younger listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The world was still fairly new then. We lived in a state of perpetual astonishment. And every morning when we opened our eyes, it felt almost as if we were doing it for the first time. Almost as if, by merely opening our eyes, we were somehow making the world. Which is probably a strange thing to say, but that was how it felt. Sometimes, while we slept, the moon rose... It always surprised us to see it up there, bright as a face in firelight, and just as wondrous, floating over the mountain. We had not yet named too many things by then, but this bright, inscrutable, miraculous face floating over the mountain was one of the things we had named, and so it was always something of a comfort to see it up there and to say its name. We were often afraid which, yes, may sound like a pretty awful way to live, but then we were also often happy, or at least not so paralyzed by fear that we weren't able to appreciate the unexpected little joys the world sent our way. Butterflies, for instance. Big butterflies, little butterflies. How we loved it when they fluttered up from the flowers that grew along the path startling us. They were another thing we'd found a name for, And sometimes, as we walked along, just for the fun of it, we would repeat the word to ourselves, butterfly, butterfly. Then one day someone pointed out that whenever we said the word butterfly, they would often appear, or at least they would sometimes appear, as if by magic. This discovery was in no way diminished by the fact that that the butterflies would occasionally choose to remain hidden for days, even as we called and called. In fact, it added to the overall magical quality of their appearances, and made us even more happy when they did show up, whenever that might be. Of course, we ate them. We ate everything then, butterflies and wriggling grubs, all sorts of tough, bitter grasses and roots and weeds, We ate the flowers that grew along the path that would one day bring us to the mountain, and the velvety, deliciously delicate little berries that grew in great cloudy thickets, even though their thorns left our fingers bloody. We ate mice and birds and lizards and snakes, any meat we could find, really. We weren't picky. We scaled dizzying cliffs, clambered to the highest branches of the highest trees, and scooped honey, thick, sweet handfuls of honey in which the tiny bodies of bees floated like drowned swimmers. When there was nothing else to eat, we scraped the bark off trees and boiled it, or just chewed it raw until our teeth hurt. Sometimes, not often, but sometimes, we ate each other. It always bothered us. After all, these were our companions, our dearest friends. We always felt strange afterward, though we didn't have the words yet to express precisely what we were feeling. At first, we would just leave the bones wherever, 
Then someone suggested it might be better if we at least put them somewhere. That is, somewhere away from us. Lions were a big problem back then, and the last thing we wanted was some hungry lion to come nosing around while we slept. And of course, there was that feeling of strangeness that always rose up in us afterward. That nagging disquiet, which grew heavier as time passed, or maybe brighter is the better word. Brighter, like the moon. So we dug a little hole, a nice, comfortable little hole in the dirt, and placed the bones in it. Or we found a deep, dark cave, some out-of-the-way corner, so to speak, to throw them in. Eventually it occurred to us it might be best to say a few words. So long, it was nice knowing you. Hope it's better down there than it is up here. See you soon. Sometimes it snowed, and in the morning when we woke, we'd be covered from head to toe. Our eyelids were nearly frozen shut. Clumps of ice matted our hair. Our backs ached horribly, and our feet felt as hard as hooves, and whatever we looked at, the moon, the mountain, it was like looking through a haze of blowing snow, a mist. We saw the world as fish see it in winter, looking up from their prison of ice, or those drowned bees when we would scoop them out by the handful, trapped in their golden heaven of honey. Every now and then someone would fail to wake up, and we would stand around in astonishment for a time, studying their face, the mouth that had once made words, now quickly filling up with snow, trying to find a name for this thing that had happened, this awful, astonishing, frightening thing that was always there, day and night, like the mountain we would one day, eventually, reach. Sometimes the cliffside someone was clinging to would suddenly crumble as they were reaching in for the honey or a branch would snap and then we'd hear them falling. Sometimes while we slept a lion would drag someone off so that in the morning when we woke there was nothing left but the matted down grass on which they'd slept still showing the shape of their head and their arms and feet and maybe a wild sketching of tracks in the snow, a kind of deranged calligraphy. But that was it. It always surprised us, even though we should have been used to such things by then. We would study the tracks and the bed of grass they'd slept on. We would run our hands over it, saying, Butterfly, butterfly, or moon, moon. Then we would gather up our things, the things we had named and the things that were still yet to be named, and we would start off down the path. Now, of course, these are all just words in a story. A story about some long-ago world, before cities, before writing, back when the human voice, or some earlier, 
pre-human voice was the only means by which stories were made and shared and even, sometimes, remembered after their maker was gone. I wrote it because I was thinking about how magical words are, words and the stories we tell with them. Think about all the extraordinary words that have ever been written, Shakespeare and Virginia Woolf, Jorge Luis Borges, Anton Chekhov, Madame Bovary, the prime of Miss Jean Brody. Extraordinary in that quiet, almost invisible way of things we spend most of our lives barely noticing, even as they shape our lives and our world. I was thinking, what were the first words? How did such a miracle ever happen? And once we discovered words, once we began to speak, in what way did that change how we saw the world? And what was that long-ago world like, before cities, before history, a hundred thousand years ago, three hundred thousand years ago, when we were not quite yet the human beings we would one day become, when even the idea of death was possibly unknown to us, was, as the archaeologist and author Timothy Taylor has said, an obscure fact cloaked in mystery. Before art, before religion. When did we become, well, us? And what does it mean to be human? So, in the hope of shedding a bit of light on these questions, I spoke to Timothy Taylor, author of The Buried Soul, How Humans Invented Death, a book which in no small way got me started down this strange and endlessly surprising path. Dr. Taylor is also the author of The Prehistory of Sex, Four Million Years of Human Sexual Culture, and The Artificial Ape, How Technology Changed the Course of Human Evolution. He is the Jan Eisner Professor of Archaeology at Comenius University, Bratislava, Slovakia, and the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of World Prehistory. And now, Timothy Taylor. So uh, I thought I might uh, ask you a couple of questions about uh, your book, The Buried Soul. Subtitle of it is How in Humans Invented Death. And I thought that's an intriguing notion, this, this idea that human beings, we as a species, invented or discovered death. And so how did humans invent death? The, the really trivial answer is that around the time I was writing the book, um, I realized that there were a number of books with the word invention um, in the title. In fact, it was a very interesting vict- book about the Victorians, I think, Peter Bowler, the, called The Invention of Progress. And these came out as it's almost always the zeitgeist. You know, I planned calling it The Invention of Death. And then suddenly there was a plethora of the invention of this, the invention of that, the invention of the other. And um, I thought, that's actually just going to look hackneyed. Um, and therefore, I you know, came up um, with this wonderful collocation. I didn't come up with it. That's William Blake, The Buried Soul, um, which I thought was just archaeological and fantastic. And, um, and so 
I used the invention of death in a subtitle, but I was very serious about it because, uh, and, and so I was disappointed in a way not to use it. And it's also the point that I failed to get across in the book. I think you always feel after you've finished a book that there are certain things that you didn't manage to explain. And so this is rather an admission of failure than anything else, that there, there is, I'm working on some more um, books now and um, trying to get this point over a bit better about our cognitive psychology. So <clears throat> there you are, you and me, and we're talking about what was it like to be in prehistory. And in prehistory, there were people. But past a certain point in prehistory, there weren't people quite like us. And past an even deeper point, they were even less like us. And even more like modern-day chimpanzees. And even before that, they were more like shrews. And even before that, they were like slugs. And that's, a, that, that, that's evolution. That's the in, incredible kind of um, destabilization of metaphysics that Darwin created. It's no wonder there are loads of Darwin deniers and evolution deniers, because that's an extraordinarily upsetting thought that there's a linear a lineal connection, M mother and father, great-grandmother and father, all the way, and they're, and they're actually slugs. They're not humans anymore. And so what I've noticed that is that in, in a lot of my colleagues, and maybe, you know, it's anthropology as well as archaeology, there are these sort of becoming moments, like when do we become human? They're kind of ciphers for the... Uh, the, the kind of substitutions for the for, the, for Genesis. Um, um, uh, when does the light come on? We're, we're very. It, it's very difficult for us to think gradually, and that's not surprising because some of the things that we think about, you kind of think, well, either you know that or you don't. You know, either you know that you're mortal or you don't. And um, the the general feeling has been that, you know, human beings pass a particular cognitive threshold, pass a particular intellectual point, where they, they become aware of their own mortality. And in a way, that has to be true. We, we know that animals avoid death. That would be one of the most fundamental things about life and reproduction, is to avoid death for a certain length of time. And there's, you know, a huge amount written about that. And who you'll sacrifice your genes for and altruism and group selection. And, you know, let's, let's not go down that line, but it's real, right? It's obviously, there's a absolutely fundamental uh, drive to stay alive and to reproduce because that's what generated life, you know? Now, when does that, when does that come up, that thinking about I will die occur? And it seemed to me that the answers that had been given were very cheap, that they were simply to do with a particular biological level of brain size being passed. And people went, ah, oh gosh, I'm going to die. And I, I'm, I'm unconvinced by that. And I tried. And that I should have realised that was my main task in the book, 
in the idea of mortalness was to really, but it's the most difficult thing because it goes against our linguistic, um, our linguistic, um, you know, lang- words and thoughts, metaphysics, and you will know this as a novelist, are all tied up in a, in a network of, of, of associations, which means it's very, very difficult to think past this. And as a prehistorian, you've got to try to think about what are the prior conditions. You can't be continually um, anachronistically shooting back into the past uh, ideas that are familiar to us today. And I began to wonder whether it was possible for quite intelligent hominins you know, Homo erectus, Homo gaster, Australopithecus afarensis, or these groups. We like we know there's trauma of death in chimpanzees, and in elephants, and so on, but we don't know that there's the idea of personal mortality. In fact, we would rather assume that there isn't. Um, that a, a chimpanzee does not have a concept of personal mortality in the sense that we do, or in the sense of actually creating all sorts of structures to try to avoid that reality, which is, you know, religion. The fact they don't have religious rituals, in fact, might be one of the indications that they haven't had that thought, that really worrying thought yet. And maybe this is how I should have written the book, what I'm talking to you now, maybe this is how, maybe how I should have begun it, because um, what I thought was it actually be quite possible to live in a group of 30 or 40 people you know, in the rainforest, on the savannah, wherever. And there'd always be some people dying. It's not that you wouldn't see death. Um, some babies would die. Some people would be, you might eat some other people. Um, some elderly people would die, but some would stay alive. And any particular kind of viewpoint on death would have a kind of a, whole set of different experiences associated to it. death of animals, death of plants, death of young people, death of old people. But not necessarily ipso facto, you know, would you necessarily think I'm going to die? Particularly if you're kind of programmed to avoid it. Um, so the fact that everybody does die could remain a secret in a sense. And I don't mean a secret held by the group. I mean, it could just be obscure, could be an obscure fact. And, um, and that's why I wanted to write about the invention of death, uh, because the, fir- the very first formal burials of formal treatments of, of human remains um, is what, but being an archaeologist and a materialist, I sort of, and uh, believing in what I call materiality theory, I thought that probably what might drive the intellectual idea of mortality might be practice. The practice might come first, that you're doing something in co-ate. Maybe it's slightly hygienic. Maybe it's just something like you don't want to see the face of your dead relative lying on the ground. You don't want it to be eaten by animals. There's something funny about that. You start to do something more constructed. Chuck them down a cave hole um, or you know, take mad aside or whatever. Um, and, and through that, you might actually create this status of being dead and begin to valorize it and say, 
the death of so-and-so, which previously wasn't an event. And that would get you thinking about what are people going to do if that happens to me? Not necessarily when, but if. And um, I began to think that that might be the beginning of the invention of death. But I didn't write it anywhere near as well in the book. So you, th- your idea, and, and this is, sounds like an idea that has, um, um, that you've developed since or during the writing of The Buried Soul and since then too, if you want to write about it, it yeah. this idea that the ritual comes first. The yeah. ritual is a reaction to what death, but the yeah. death is we don't quite realize yet that it's going to happen to us. Yeah. And the ritual creates, uh, so the ritual comes first. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I think this is true of in, in a number of other areas as well. Um, I'm, I cited, um, if you look at the book, you'll see I cited a, a very influential early anthropologist, R. Merritt, mm-hmm. who said um, something um, that ideas were not so much thought out as danced out. Mm. Um, and I think that's very. You know, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful um, kind of description of how humans are. We we often justify things after the event. We, we start doing something, and then we say, "This is why we do it." Do you think uh, I've been doing a lot of research into the, de- the development of language in human beings? And um, do you think there might be any connection between? our development of language, uh, and I say humans, uh, there is a notion that perhaps human language has been around or language of some sort has been around since there've been humans, but there's also debate about, well, did language evolve? Um, maybe over, I don't know how long it might have, may have evolved, but do you think there may be a connection between language and our understanding of death yeah uh, no uh, undoubtedly um uh, language is the area i haven't gone into um yet um so i wrote before buried soul i wrote a book called the prehistory of sex and the book after that was called the artificial ape which is about technology and each of the three books um, I mean, it's part of a developing work in progress, I guess. Um, and language is the sort of the, it's the most difficult one for, for an archaeologist. And I'm still working out how I get at it, because it's to do a lot, it's to do with naming. Um, it's quite, and it obviously means so many different things, because, you know, um, uh, so again, I would take a, partly an evolutionary and, and gradualistic view, because we know that you know chimpanzees have all sorts of vocalizations. Just keep mentioning chimpanzees because they're obviously they're one of the commonest proxies for you know the early hominid state. But again, there's been an awful lot of kind of debate among colleagues about you know the moment when the light goes on. You know, do, do Neanderthals have a hyoid bone? You know. Could, could they could they speak and and really it depends what you mean about you know what what it means to to, to speak and what what kind of language have you got and 
and what's in your language? And I, I, you know, I'm very Wittgensteinian. I think there are things that we are able to think today that couldn't have been thought um, a, a thousand years ago, and actually vice versa. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've never learned Sanskrit, but I hear it's a, you know, very subtle in, in, its, in its philosophical expression, and therefore it contains concepts which I, I don't have, and I could learn to have them if I used language. So I see language as a faculty, as, so it's a technology that we're increasingly um, able to use and misuse, and it clearly has, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a word like death is um, just the grammar of it in any language. I mean, you know, I mean, what's it mean to say my death? I mean, like, where's the, who's the me? Um, I mean, that's one of the real big scary things about death, isn't it? It's, it's, it's like it actually can kind of, I'll be blunt and Anglo-Saxon here, it really fucks with our minds at that point because you think, you know, like, you know, my death? How would it be mine? I mean, I wouldn't own it afterwards. Absolutely. And and it's interesting you talked about, you said among your colleagues, the sort of idea of language is is up for debate. And even among linguists, I'm discovering there was a, for decades, even the idea of the origin of language was kind of considered uh, a topic not to be investigated. I didn't know that. I thought it was a very simple question when when I asked myself, what were what, when did humans start to th- speak? And I thought, well, I'll just go find the answer to that. And it turns out that uh, linguists wouldn't answer that question. I think since the 1860s, it was declared not a topic that we would go into. There was a, some kind of French society that determined that this is uh, this is a question that we can't answer, so therefore we won't answer it. And and it wasn't until uh, uh, scholars like Noam Chomsky and then later on Steven Pinker and some other scholars kind of questioned that idea. And now, of course, there's a lot of research into it. Uh, well, the problem, I mean, I would say um, I've read Chomsky and Pinker and they're uh, – so I trained in archaeology and anthropology in Cambridge many years ago and – uh, before Pinker was writing, but Chomsky was certainly writing, and there was the Sapir Whorf hypothesis as well, um, and the Greenberg hypothesis, and um, um, these ideas of universal grammar. And I mean, this is this is not my specialism, but my hunch is that Chomsky is pretty fundamentally wrong about it mm. um, in terms of the idea of underlying universal grammars. I I don't I don't buy it. Um, I think it's a trend, and I think Pinker's kind of been misled as well. Much though I admire quite a lot of what he's written, I don't, I don't um, believe the language instinct. I think a lot of the the apparent similarities are to do with the translational, the translational necessity of saying, "Oh, so this structure exists in this language." That's simply like recognition of other human beings having other languages. But whether you're, it's the huge difficulty in expressing other thought ways in your own language. Um, And that goes back to the answer to your first question about why I called it the invention of death and how I failed, I believe, to persuade people um, that uh, there could have been fully sentient homo sapiens sapiens who 
didn't understand their own mor- mortality um, because they, because they don't have the words to write that thought. And so, you, in a sense, you have to then begin to write an imaginative story um, to try to embed uh, an imaginative conception to try to persuade people that they that they really could think in this other way. It's the huge challenge of prehistory, I think, to to do that and to be grounded by evidence rather than just write a load of kind of fantasy. You know? Well, and you mentioned in your book, uh, you mentioned in your book the difficulty with archaeology and anthropology is the limited number of material that you have to examine. You know, there's just you said I, I forget the exact number, but there was like some, you know, maybe a hundred billion. I can't remember exactly how many people have lived and died, and mm-hmm. what scant evidence we find. And when we're talking about language, you don't even have that. There, yeah. there aren't bones to sift through <laughs> when we're talking about the first words, right? So it's, it would imagine it would be an even more, I don't know if impossible, but a, a, a deeply speculative task to try to unravel that mystery of the first yeah. origins of language. Yeah. And you have a fascinating take on the Great Pyramids of Khufu uh, or Chops, uh, maybe mispronouncing it. We're used to seeing monuments like pyramids and as uh, a kind of stamp of prestige and power and wealth. But look at it inside out, you say, and we see architectural containment on a vast scale. And I found that was fascinating. I was sort of, containment of what? Yeah. Well, that's a good, I think it was prompted actually by um, uh, Melville in Moby Dick, which I may have quoted there actually. I don't know whether I did, but um, he, he talks about the, I think Ishmael is rapping one evening about or no, maybe it's Melville, um, about the pyramids and what they are and the huge, the huge dissatisfaction you must feel in life if you have to build that to, to, to die in. And I think that was, that was really, it's a kind of typical Melville's dry humour. I find Moby Dick's a very, very funny novel. I've read it about four times, and it gets funnier each time. I, it's it's um, remarkably dry, like Kafka. And um, I I think that was the point. I just thought thought that that really is a a um, there's there's a sort of a sick joke about the pyramids that it's put up as a monument to this guy, and he's involved in it, you know. I mean, the Great Pyramids sort of are this development. And then there's this particular period, uh, 2500 BC, where you get, you know, three of them in a row sort of vying with each other. And um, I just kind of was struck by the parallels with other sort of major monuments, you know, to Lenin or to Stalin, people who, who other people were terrified of that there was this sense that this wasn't just a monument, but they were really walling him in, you know. And um, yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that I can say any more about that because it's not, I'm not, in a sense, I'm speculating beyond the intention of the person being buried. Although I'm very, you know, I'm very interested in, in pyramids generally and how they capture the popular imagination um, uh, in, in some sort of, all the wrong ways, I think. Yeah, and you had a term, the malevolence of the mature soul. 
And I thought that was interesting. This and 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 this comes up uh, quite a bit in my research into these this phenomenon of bog bodies. Yeah. There was there's something dangerous about death. Yeah. And the rituals seem to be meant to not necessarily appease the soul of the person who's being sacrificed, but to contain it and to guard against it. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that's what I was thinking. Um, I mean, I wrote the book now 18 years ago. Um, and so I'm thinking back about how, what things I've changed my mind about. Um, not a lot, um, but maybe I'd be less charitable um, to the, I think people are very, very competitive and very atavistic and very, a lot of that is kind of hidden by culture. And so I think that people um, project an awful lot onto, project a lot of their own guilt about how they might have been better into a kind of a hatred towards the dead um, for being dead or for being beyond dealing with anymore, that they got away with it, you know. Um, and, and I think that's something that you see maybe in, uh, in these particularly elaborate rituals. There's a kind of a overcompensation. I'm not really being very coherent here, Travis. I mean, I'm thinking, um, you know, when people say hatred is also a form of attachment. And um, one of the anthropologists who really influenced me, I died well before my time, but I was um, taught his stuff by uh, Rodney Needham in Oxford, who is also now dead. But Needham had been influenced by um, Robert Hertz, the French anthropologist. And Hertz uh, is probably the most profound social anthropologist of death. Um, and I think what's translated into English. Um, but Hertz talks about death being, um, yeah, that's right. I mean, death and the right hand was translated by Needham uh, in 1960. But Hertz's key work is, you know, 1907. You'll find it in the in the back of my book, and he, he, he talks about the relationship between um, uh, the idea of a particular death, um, the idea of death itself as a phenomenon, and then the idea of a spirit of death, and that all of these things are actually quite challenging in different ways. And so he began to kind of say death is not, not a single thing, and it's not a single fear, and it's not a single reaction, a single process. It actually uh, involves a whole range of different fears and emotions towards different objects, towards the realm of the dead, towards death as a force, and towards the rift caused by the loss of the individual who's died to the social fabric, which is, a, which is um, uh, an affront uh, to those who survive. Now, what I didn't say, this would bring this back to language, I think, <clears throat> and what you asked me, because another thing that I didn't really go, go into in enough detail is, uh, and, I, and I want to do this in future 
works is is is, is discuss this more is the idea of an individual dying um so you're travis i'm tim we're individuals but right now we're indulging in a form of life that's very human which is actually probably peculiarly human that makes both of us probably more of what we are than we were when we weren't talking that is, and that's very typical of humans we're not islands um we we commute language this is Wittgenstein's private language argument. There is no private language. So language is a shared endeavor. And you might say, therefore, that cognition is a shared endeavor, true cognition. And therefore, the understanding the sense of death is, is actually not just to do with the fact that you die or I die, but that when you die or when I die, a bit of you or I also dies. That there is, and, and I don't mean that in some sort of, you know, flaky sort of way. I th- I think that those 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 losses are losses to the living individuals, so-called living individuals as well, uh, as well as the fact that individual. I wrote more about this in actually the artificial ape, um, because I often talk to my students about the idea of us being extended through technology, and that includes language. Um, And um, if you put it to me, would I, you know, if you gave me a Sophie's Choice, uh, sort of a William Starlesque choice, that you could put all of my books beyond use, all of the novels that I'd ever read, all of the Shakespeare and the Melville and the Pynchon and the George Eliot and all of the science books and everything, and that I didn't have them anymore, that I couldn't have my library. Or, and this would be the choice, you, you were going to chop my left foot off. But that's the choice. Right? Loss of left foot or no books, books beyond all use. And um, I'd actually go for the left foot um, because I could kind of replace it, not brilliantly, but I could kind of replace it. But if you took Shakespeare away from me, who's dead, I'm not the same person. I'm not, I, I, I would have been, I would be more badly disabled by that. Um, uh, and therefore, that shows me that I'm not, that to be human is actually not to be a biologically, a purely biological individual interacting. And, um, so I think death, the, what Hurt said about death being this huge rift in the social fabric, it, one could go further and say, it's, you know, it is a psychological alteration in all of those minds to, that it directly affects. And, you know, and even, you know, even the death of people we don't know about. I mean, you can see that the concerns that, you know, COVID as a virus is causing. Uh, right now, even though people can't count the numbers and aren't really seeing it all that much close up, people are getting very, feeling very threatened. Um, and people might say, well, that's irrational, you know, look at the statistics. Um, but, it, but it's not at all. I just have one more question, uh, Tim, and thank you for your time. It's really been great talking to you. I don't want to keep you. I know it's eight o'clock there where you're at, and you're probably at the end of a long day. So, 
Um, and your and and the buried soul. And I didn't know this. Uh, of course, I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not an archaeologist. But I was surprised to discover, at least at the time of the writing of the buried soul, that ideas of cannibalism were rather controversial. This idea that human beings had once eaten one another. Uh, and that there were ritualists, rituals involved in this was controversial. I don't know if the idea of human sacrifice was also considered kind of controversial through the 70s and the 80s. Is that still the case in uh, archaeology, anthropology? Yes, in part. I mean, human sacrifice and cannibalism have been kind of largely written out of Anthro 101 textbooks um, uh, with much else. Um, as I mean, we could talk for a long time about why this is. Um, uh, I, I mean, ultimately, I would say it's a kind of an, 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 an inverted imperialism or an inverted ethnocentrism mm-hmm. that, that, that kind of is so um, absorbed um, sort of Judeo-Christian ideas. The thing is that we broadly... Um, with the exception of some sort of 19th century seafarers who were forced to eat their friends, um, got a lot of um, insulation from the idea that you had to, um, that human beings were edible. And after the agricultural revolution in Europe 10,000 years ago, it increasingly wasn't the style, you know, if you could provide for people in other ways, um, you did. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, the, 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 um, the thing was when, when cannibalism sort of came back into thinking in, in, science, in anthropology, it was in the 19th century, and it was largely to do with, you know, contacting people in Papua New Guinea and, um, and the Amazon and looking at very ancient accounts, which could always be called into question. And um, in the 19, late 1970s, 19, early 1980s, there was this high point, William Ahrens at Stony Brook, and there was another colleague, Heidi Peter-Rosher in Germany, who just sort of said, well, we haven't set the evidential bar for this very high. And I think made the mistake of thinking um, that there was a sort of a, you know, like Stephen Pinker, that there was a sort of a human nature, that we wouldn't do that, would we? And that all of this could be painted as racism, um, uh, as if finding instances where other people have been sort of called cannibals in a derogatory sense, which I'm sure of it you know, has happened many times, wasn't um, part of a, a broader story in which it really had happened, you know, and was customary. Um, so when people started working in the, in the um, you know, the Four Corners region, people like Christy, uh, Christy Turner, uh, Christy and Jacqueline Turner, he was a, a police forensic um, officer uh, turned archaeologist, and they started working on an Asatsi um, uh, bone assemblages, human bone assemblages. And said, well, you know, from a police point of view, you'd say these have been burnt, they've been cooked and eaten. And um, and in a way they were so defensive, of course. I mean, it was super work, but it, but then they they set the sort of the 
the set of the criteria where if you have X, Y, Z and the, and the other, these various things, cranial spalling and various things with the representation of the rib bones, um, uh, missing of the proximal phalanges and so on and so on, you could say prima facie we have a cannibalism case here. Um, and in a way that sort of ironically played into the hands of even more scepticism because it was like it set the bar so high because it said you, archaeologically we can only talk about it if we have all those um, all those uh, markers. Uh, and I think Buried Soul actually did was successful in that sense, that I think that it was, um, I, uh, I can only be anecdotal about it, about colleagues and things. Uh, I think it gave a lot of colleagues the courage to uh, be, be a, a lot more straightforward about the fact that we see quite a lot of it in um, in prehistory. And I wrote an article actually at the end of last year about um, vampires, cannibalism and um, and uh, non-paradigmatic data. If you'd like it, I'll send you the PDF um, because it's about a Romanian case of cannibalism from 2004, uh, cannibalism connected to vampire, uh, vampiric burial. Um, and um, I think I probably set out the stall very well there because um, what I didn't know when I... when um, and maybe a bit of it in buried soul, but I think it became a bit clearer afterwards, is that epidemiologically, we, we carry the smoking gun. I mean, we, we are, you know, that's why um, my daughters were not at risk uh, from their hamburgers during the mad cow disease outbreak in Britain. You know, there was a huge worry about that when they were um, so eight and 12. I remember being worried myself. I thought, oh, my God, you know, we've got an outbreak of mad cow disease. And there was a lot, if you look at the papers at the time, I was really, really worried. I mean, about 200 people had died in Britain from it, mm. 200, 250 um, new variant CJD. But it turns out that we've all been heavily evolutionarily inoculated against eating each other. And there's really, <laughs> there's oh. really, only, one, there's really only one explanation for that epidemiologically. And there are, there are papers on that. Um, so I'll send you a copy of that um, article, which is a little bit of a reboot of probably the area where I was possibly most successful in changing my colleague's mind was the edible dead stuff. Well, but, I, but, yeah, I look forward to reading that. That sounds fascinating. And I, I yeah, I, I thought, um, I think I thought in your book, even, uh, well, I thought in The Buried Soul, you made a very convincing case about the reason why sort of anthropology maybe in the seventies began to move away from this idea because they had associated it with the 19th century, some of the kind of racist views in the 19th century, these were seen as primitive tribes or whatever. But if you look at, but then you lay out the whole swath of prehistory and, and, you know, even Herodotus writing in the fifth century that, and the uh, the Isodones, I guess they were called, and the Kazakhs, yeah. they were eating one another in rituals. Uh, uh, we've we've been doing it um, certainly in the in my research into Russia in the 1920s during the famines. Of course, yeah. there were sure. well known uh, ep yeah. episodes of cannibalism. Yeah. Indeed, it's just something that human beings have always done. <laughs> well, Tim, thank you so much. It's been fascinating talking with you. I, I really am glad we, we were able to do this. Well, let's stay in touch, Travis.
My thanks to Timothy Taylor for a great conversation. A quick note, Dr. Taylor wanted me to clarify something we discussed in our conversation about mad cow disease, and I'll just quote his email to me. Dr. Taylor writes, What I meant was that we have developed a genetic resistance to prion protein diseases like the new variant mad cow disease due to evolutionary species-wide exposure to prion pathogens encountered through cannibalistic practice. So, my thanks to Dr. Taylor for clarifying that for our listeners. And speaking of thanks, my thanks to Blear Moon, whose music you hear on today's episode. It's from his album, Expanding Lands, and you can find it on Spotify. If you like the podcast, I hope you'll give it a review and share it with your friends. It's how we reach new listeners. And to you listening out there, thank you. It's a pleasure getting a chance to spend this time with you and share these conversations with you. If you have any questions about the podcast or just want to reach out, you can email me at footnotes to a novel at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Travis Holland, and you've been listening to Footnotes to a Novel. Until next time, take care. <laughs>